the Pump Court Family podcast. My name is Tara Lyons and today I'm delighted to be joined by a fellow member of Chambers, Jennifer Lee. Many of you will know Jennifer for her stellar work at the Financial Remedies Bar, being ranked as a leading junior in Tier 1 in the Legal 500 and repeatedly ranked in Chambers and Partners. However, Jennifer also specialises in court of protection cases, which makes her an apt speaker for our talk today on court of protection in the context of divorce and financial remedies cases. She leads a court of protection team at Pump Court Chambers together with Leslie Samuels QC. And so we're delighted to have her on today. Jennifer, hello. Hello, Tara. I'm delighted to be on your very illustrious podcast. Um, It's my debut. And so um, I think better late than never. (laughs) Thank you, Jennifer. High praise indeed. Um, So you're you're going to tell us a little bit about uh, capacity um, today. And it's something when all of us are in autopilot dealing with our cases that can sometimes Um, get overlooked. So when we're thinking about a client's capacity, what in particular do we have to be aware of? I think, Tara, the one thing which often um, can exercise um, family practitioners is the fact that there are different thresholds for capacity. And so the question is time and decision specific as well. And so the focus very much must be on the ability of the client to make a specific decision at the time of that decision. Um, And talking about the different thresholds, um, for example, it's not uncommon to see cases where a client has capacity to marry, capacity to engage in sexual relations, but not have the capacity to manage their property and affairs or to litigate because those are all very different things. Yes. And so I suppose as family law advisors, actually we've got to be thinking, particularly in the context of a divorce, of all of those different capacities because of course, if the client doesn't or didn't, may not have had capacity to marry, then I think from, from merit, memory, is the marriage vo- void? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, you're, you're definitely, as an advisor, I think certainly with a core of protection and family, um, um, both hats on, um, I think a very good example of what you've just highlighted is um, a, a case called PBM versus TGT and Ex-Local Authority. And it's a 2019 Court of Protection case decided by by Mr. Justice Francis, where there was a very young man who had sustained a very serious brain injury when he was a child, um, had been awarded substantial sums, which was held in a trust for him. And so although um, eventually they found he had capacity to marry, capacity to make a will, capacity to enter into a prenuptial agreement with his fiancée, 
Um, he still lacked capacity to manage his property and affairs more generally, though. But if the decision had gone the other way, and this young man had been found not to have the capacity to marry, that marriage effectively would not be a valid marriage. And so it's a very good example of how, if you're properly advised, I think that issue would be looked at at the very outset. And when you are instructed by a client who um, wants to uh, issue a petition uh, and then deal with the financial remedies, what sorts of things have you got to be thinking about if you're concerned that he or she might lack capacity? First of all, in terms of the divorce itself. Yeah, um, I think first and foremost, um, advisors in that position would immediately, in my view, certainly ascertain from an appropriate medical professional. And actually, it's crucial to have the right professional because sometimes, you know, the professional himself or herself gets things wrong. But I think the first step really would be to go to a medical professional who can assess your client in relation to whether or not there is capacity to marry um, and capacity actually to understand the advice you're giving. Um, I've seen many cases where that inquiry is not done at the very outset. Um, and you end up in situations where, you know, you're further down the line and actually it's far too late because that decision had already been made in circumstances when the client didn't have capacity in the first place. So can I, can I also say, Tara, um, in relation to capacity to marry, um, it's probably quite important to know that the courts have said that the threshold for that test is pretty low. Um, the wisdom of the marriage is yes. not relevant. You'd be focusing on whether that person has an understanding of the broad nature of the marriage contract and just really the potential for financial consequences on breakdown. And that's another case um, fairly recent in the Court of Protection called Mundell, um, 2019 case decided by Mr. Justice Mostyn, where he had to decide whether this young man had capacity to marry. He lacked capacity to manage his property and affairs, which included assets of about 1.5 million. Um, and there was a concern he didn't understand the implications of a divorce. So the hearing in front of Mostyn was two days before the marriage. So you can imagine the urgency, you know. So um, Mostyn said essentially um, that the threshold was very low. Um, all you needed really was an understanding that on divorce there would be financial consequences. But he expressly rejected the notion that we should introduce into the test for capacity to marry, a requirement that there should be anything more than that. So you don't need an appreciation of what the result of that potential claim might be. And if someone is found not to have capacity to, marriage, uh, to marry, am I right in thinking that the court of protection or any deputy appointed to act on behalf of P can't consent to a marriage on their behalf, is that right? Absolutely right, Tara. So 
Um, as you know, the Court of Protection has the power to make decisions on behalf of people who lack capacity to make certain decisions themselves. Um, but the Mental Capacity Act, which underpins the powers, which gives the, the Court of Protection its powers, under Section 27, the statute expressly says that the Court of Protection is not able to make certain decisions on family relationships on behalf of people who lack the necessary capacity. So for example, you, the court of protection can't consent um, on behalf of that person to a marriage or civil partnership and can't consent um, to a divorce dissolution on the basis of two years separation, which is the only ground for divorce where both parties give consent. So certain decisions concerning family relationships cannot be made by the court of protection but what the court can do is to make declarations, decisions as to whether or not that person has the capacity. And so going back to our example of when you're concerned that your client might have a lack of capacity um, or lack capacity and um, you're instructed on the divorce, if the medical evidence comes back saying no got capacity obviously that's no problem however if the medical evidence comes back saying no your client lacks capacity what what steps do you have to do next to help them through their divorce we know it can't be um a divorce uh, on the grounds of two years separation but i'm assuming provided there's unreasonable behavior or the other grounds the divorce is still yeah. possible so so what would take how would that work so i think the first step really would be to highlight that um under the family procedure rules part 15 a litigation friend um must be appointed um on behalf of this client to give instructions and to act on their behalf and so and this applies across the board in family proceedings whether money or children once your client is found to lack litigation capacity, part 15 kicks in, litigation friend must be appointed. And the rules make it very clear that the case cannot proceed until a litigation friend is appointed. And so any step taken before the appointment of a litigation friend, except for the filing of the initial application, the application to appoint the litigation friend itself, of course, save for those, any steps taken before the appointment of the litigation friend has no effect unless the court gives permission. So really, really important to bear that in mind. And it's surprising um, that some professionals, some family lawyers are not aware of that. And actually some people forget that the requirement exists. And when you're thinking about who should be appointed as a litigation friend, I mean, I know from experience, um, that you don't want someone um, who feels too passionately about uh, P's divorce themselves because that can sometimes be a, be a hindrance. But who, who should you be thinking about suggesting should be the litigation friend? Well, some, sometimes um, if the Court of Protection has already been involved and appointed a deputy, to manage property and affairs, that deputy might already have authority anyway to act in the financial family proceedings. Not always, but sometimes. Um, if nobody um, has been appointed to act 
in the family proceedings, then actually the, the family procedure rules state that anyone um, who can fairly and competently conduct the proceedings and has no adverse interest to P can act. So literally anyone who meets that criteria in theory can be appointed. But I think you raise a really valid point there, Tara, in, in terms of a note of caution. Um, certainly my experience also is that you should think very carefully who you approach to become a litigation friend because appointing the right person can make all the difference. Um, a client's next of kin um, is not always the best person to appoint from a litigation perspective. Um, they can sometimes prolong and complicate the process because of very strong emotional views and occasionally, I'm afraid to say, their own financial agendas. Yeah, and even if P is said to lack capacity, of course, the litigation friend and you as their representative still has to involve P um, yeah. and get a feeling from them of um, their wishes and uh, take instructions nonetheless. It's just that ultimately it's a litigation friend, isn't it? giving instructions. I mean, you know, I think, again, that's a really good point, Tara, because although the client lacks litigation capacity, you know, consistent with the Mental Capacity Act, consistent with this general principle that actually, you know, that person still has to be enabled to participate in the proceedings as much as they are able to with assistance, so it's right and proper to involve that person still to take their views into account, but ultimately you, you, know, you, you, you act in their best interest when making those decisions. So absolutely. And um, what, I, I'm sorry, what, go ahead. I was just gonna say, what about the conduct of the final hearing? If you, if you have got um, a litigation friend involved, would P be required to give evidence or would it be the litigation friend on behalf of P? No, um, P certainly would not be going into the witness box at the final hearing of the financial remedy proceedings and being cross-examined. So actually, that's a crucial point to bear in mind. And that actually, if one spouse is being represented by a litigation friend, that party will not be giving evidence himself or herself. What tends to happen is that the litigation friend who would have filed a final statement, of course, having done that, the litigation friend can be cross-examined on that statement, but it's quite an artificial process in my experience because you're asking the litigation friend who isn't giving direct first-hand information he or she can only sort of relay information that's within his or her knowledge pertaining to that party themselves. Yes. And sorry, I interrupted you before. I was going to make the same point. <laughs> <laughs> great minds, great <laughs> minds. Um, well, Jennifer, I think that's probably all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for coming on. Can I just mention before I go that... Um, for family practitioners, the, the Mandel case, um, I would ask people to look it up. It's um, 2019 EWCOP50. Um, it's a Mostyn case because um, if you're acting for a client um, who has received 
um, substantial damages awards or a fund to meet his or her care. If that client then divorces, really worth looking up that case because there are some very helpful observations by Mostyn, which says that if the award has been carefully calibrated to meet that client's needs, then any attempt by the other spouse to invade it would be met with, well, you know, it would be restricted to alleviating serious financial hardship of the other party. And it seems to me that that would be a very handy quote to have. Well, I think it would help, wouldn't it? Let's up, let's um, put up that uh, citation with our with our podcast so everyone can hear it, uh, can see it, and and can uh, find the case because it does sound uh, like it's a sort of uh, go to case on these sorts of issues. Yeah. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. I found that really interesting, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Please tune in next week for an, another exciting podcast where Mark Ablett um, will be joined um, by Catherine Ellis um, from Chambers speaking about fabricated injuries, uh, which is sure to be incredibly interesting. As ever, if any of you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to discuss, then please email either Mark Ablett or myself at Pump Court Chambers, and our email addresses are on our website. Many thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you.